everyone, and welcome to the CSI Spring Series. Uh, my name is LB Snipes, and this is hopefully the first of what will be a continuous series of conversations here at Wake Forest. Uh, tonight, we're so, so fortunate and excited to have Dr. Ghostin, Dr. Vialba, and Dr. Griffith with us to engage in a discussion about counselor identity and broaching. Dr. Gosen is a professor in the counseling department with a background in social justice and advocacy work, cultural competency, and broaching. Dr. Vialba is a professor in the department, um, is the chief diversity officer at the university, and has a background working with Latinx individuals and multicultural considerations in counseling and education. And Dr. Griffith is a staff psychologist in the University Counseling Center and has experience working with underserved populations and addressing the intersections of her clients' various identities within their social and family contexts. As our worlds continue to become more and more diverse, um, we'll be challenged with finding new ways for us to grow and learn. That includes learning about ourselves, the people we serve, and how those uh, moments of continued learning come together. As we continue to reflect on recent events over the past year, including the events that led up to and followed the inauguration, we see how significant race and identity is to many people. Um, regardless of how you have processed these events over the past year, we want this conversation and the series as a whole uh, to be a space for our collective continued learning. Our speakers tonight have backgrounds in the counseling profession and experience using broaching in practice. So we hope that in sharing their experiences and perspectives, we can all feel a little bit more comfortable with the process of broaching and more confident in our counselor identities um, and how they influence our practice. Thank you so much, LB, uh, for introducing our series uh, and this evening's speakers. And again, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Bobby Lang and I will be co-leading today's session. Uh, before we begin, we do have a couple housekeeping items. So first off, I want to note that identity is complex, nuanced, and multifaceted. First off, um, we only have an hour together for each session. So while we will get to work, uh, we'll work to get the most out of our time together. Uh, we do consider this to be opening the door on these conversations rather than attempting to get to the bottom of everything. Uh, in future iterations of the series, we hope we can dive more specifically and more deeply into these topics. And so if you walk away feeling a sense of wanting more uh, time spent delving deeper, uh, please keep in mind we're hoping to make that happen in the future. And also please let us know. Uh, we're planning on sending out a survey regarding this talk to give you an opportunity to provide us with feedback. So please take the time to fill it out uh, so that we can make the series as meaningful and valuable as possible. And um, next, uh, next kind of item of housekeeping is um, if you have a question, please go ahead and post it in the chat and LB and I will monitor those questions. So there'll be a Q&A at the end of this whole discussion. And so if your question has not been answered by the end, we will do our best to ask those questions that may not have been addressed. Um, and with all that being said, I think it's about that time that we begin this discussion. Um, so to start us off, I thought it would be helpful to know a little more about what broaching is. And so uh, Dr. Ghostin, you briefly touch on broaching and the cultures course uh, but we're curious to know what your definition of broaching is. Excellent. Thank you, um, LB, Bobby, um, CSI in general, uh, for just your, your vision and making it happen. Um, so awesome. And thank you for your work and your time. And, and thanks for those that are, are pop, 
popping in to learn more about this concept. Um, broaching is, is not my thing, is not my idea. I didn't form this concept. Dr. Dave Vines in a 2007 article, um, and I'm so excited that 2020, she also uh, published a article that gives us some more how-to. I know previous students and current students are like, okay, so now how do we do it? The first article kind of talked about it, but she has a new article that, that will definitely jump in more about the actual how-to. Broaching, in essence, gives opens up a space by which the counselor invites the client to talk about differences. And we focus mainly on race, but I constantly say, and, and I say it in the, the article now, the 2020, they bring in more elements of areas of intersectionality, right? And so while I say race, that also means religion, that means uh, being of abled body, that means um, how you identify as a person, right? And so the article itself speaks to race. But what the article tells us and the research tells us is that it's the counselor's job to invite these topics into the room. And so my students know that it wouldn't be me if I wasn't a little bit humorous, right? You don't walk in the room and say, hi, my name's Dr. Michelle and I'm black, what about you? That, that's not broaching, that's weird, right? So that, that's not what this is, right? It, it comes in context, right? It, it comes in that you wanna indicate to the client that whatever topics up, this is a safe space. If it is belief system, if it's how you live your life, right? And we focus on the race uh, or uh, that starting point. Another way to look at broaching is providing um, a space by which a client, clients, can talk to you about ways in which they feel oppressed by way areas in which they feel like the world is against them. Um, or uh, maybe the system, if you will, systematic oppression, work, uh, significant others are, are not understanding their worldview. And then the last thing I'll say to that is because of the multicultural and social justice competencies, it is our task to understand our client's worldview. And so broaching invites that into the space and, and that it is believed to be the counselor's job to do that, not in some weird, awkward way, like I demonstrated, in a meaningful way uh, that allows the client to have information on that. And if there's time, uh, I have a, a, an example that I could share if, if that would be helpful. Yeah, and we might even have an opportunity in one of the questions for that. Um, thank you, Dr. Gerson, that was really thorough. Okay. Uh, we appreciate that. Um, so kind of trying to engage the discussion further, uh, Dr. Villalba, how would you define broaching? And um, also, how might that have changed over the course of your career as a professional counselor? Thanks for that, Bobby. So hi, my name's Jose and I'm Brown. How'd I do, Michelle? Michelle, was that good? We gotta work on that, we gotta work so, on that. So awkward, right? It's so absolutely awkward. I'm so glad Dr. Ghostin gave that example because I think in a lot of ways, these topics are, are difficult enough to talk about, right? And so to make it even more awkward, you, it, there's a lot of finesse that goes on with this notion of approaching is. You know, Bobby, I, I was a school counselor before I graduated with my PhD and I, I worked in private practice. And now I do something that is so far removed from whatever I thought I would do when I was training to be a counselor. Um, but I think it, 
I go back to being a first year counselor in 1996 at an elementary school. And I remember distinctly having kids in my small groups where we didn't really talk about race or gender or ethnicity or anything like that because what was the presenting issue was Mr. V, my goldfish died and I'm really, really sad. Okay, well then we're gonna talk about that goldfish and how sad that is. And, and then we'll, I guess that's that's why they call it solution-focused counseling, right? Brief solution-focused counseling. But then there were times, particularly with students who um, unfortunately, as the statistics would tell you, were either in learning disability programs or were in behavior education programs where uh, race did become an issue, ethnicity did become an issue. Um, those kids were also a little bit older, sometimes third or fourth or fifth grade. And I remember in that same first year, on one end, dealing with the grief over a dead goldfish, also working with uh, nine, 10, 11 year olds who were wondering, Mr. V, am I in this class because I'm black? Am I in this class or in this special program because I'm Native American? And I'm distinctly thinking about kids who I won't share names with, but 25 years later, I can still think about those moments, right? And so I've always seen broaching as an opportunity. Um, if you know, and I, and I appreciate uh, how Dr. Devines defines it, but if you as a counselor um, whether it's your training, whether it's your own core beliefs and disposition, whether it's your spidey sense. Dr. Gosen and I often talk about that spidey sense. If so, it, you know, you, you know that that broaching is one of the tools that you have and whether or not you match the, uh, the race or ethnicity or identity marker with that client, um, knowing that there are times when you have to go there, right? And, there, and, and, and more importantly, there are times when clients are inviting you to talk about it. Is this about race? Is, is this homophobia? Is this Islamophobia? And for you as the counselor to be like, oh, well, I don't know. So tell me about your family of origin issue. Yeah, that's not really the way to, to do that, right? So um, I'm sure we'll have other, other chances to, to talk about it, but that's how I remember think first uh, uh, coming in contact with this concept of broaching before Dr. Devines wrote the article and coined the term. So thanks, Bobby. Awesome, thank you, Dr. Viava. Um, I think there have been plenty of opportunities for our definitions of broaching to have changed over the course of our professional development. Um, so Dr. Griffith, um, how would you define broaching? And if you do broach, how often do you broach? Uh, so I am the odd man out here because I'm trained as a psychologist, right? And so broaching is not a word that they teach us in psychology programs. Um, and so when I first heard this word a couple of years ago, when we, cause we have master's interns in the counseling center, right? And they were like, you know, Brooke, tell us about broaching. And I was like, like bidding help. So I, you know, and I'm, as I do, I go, I read some things. And psychology talks about this often, right? Of like, how are we talking about identities? How are we acknowledging the client's identities and our own identities, right? And how these kind of come into the room and influence the work that we do. My theoretical grounding is primarily in feminist therapy. It kind of grounds everything that I do. And then kind of um, relational cultural therapy is built in there as well. And so when I started reading this stuff about broaching, I was like, oh, okay, I get this. It's different for me as a white woman, right? Because I step into this space and I have tremendous amounts of privilege and power as a doctor, as a the therapist with the client. 
as a white cisgendered straight woman, right? Um, also, I work for a university, so there's the assumption around kind of economic privilege as well. Um, so I step into this space with a tremendous amount of power and privilege with a student um, who is struggling. Usually when people come to my office and are sitting in a room with me, it is four weeks past when I would have suggested they see someone, right? So everything is on fire and they're having a really hard time and often they're wondering, can, can I trust you, right? And so for me, I feel like students have, they have a right to know information about me to determine whether or not I'm gonna be a good fit for them, right? Um, and so I will often talk to students in my first session, just during the intake about, tell me about your experiences as a black woman on this campus or as a person of color on this campus, right? Um, because I know that that's a thing. And I will just straight up ask and then talk about like, I recognize as a white woman with all of these positions of privilege and power that that can mean something. Um, and it is my job to help you to build a safe space, not for you to automatically step in this space and feel safe. Right. And then we are always having that conversation in different ways of, OK, let's let's talk about this. One of the things that I found that was particularly helpful in the past few years came out of the marriage and family counseling field. Um, there is an amazing woman named Dr. Tandy D. West Jones, who's at the Ackerman Institute in New York, and she talks about this idea of the counselor location of self. How are you locating yourself and talking about your identities? Um, why are we always asking the clients to talk about their identities, but we're not talking about, you know, we were taught, like, ask your client how they feel about working with a white therapist, right? But we don't talk about what it might be like for us to work with a BIPOC person, right? And so if you want your clients to be vulnerable and have that conversation, you need to be willing to take the risk and open up that space to say, like, this is a thing, like, and we'll, it's okay for us to talk about this thing and it's okay for us to be vulnerable in the space because I'm going to make mistakes because I'm a white woman and I was raised in white supremacy just like the rest of us. And what is that going to be like when it happens and how are we going to talk about that? So for me, that idea of broaching is something that we do from the very beginning. Um, it is underlying all that I do. I specialize in trauma work. And so and one of the specialties is like the interlay of generational trauma marginalization trauma, and then individual trauma, and how those things combine. So I am often talking about those things throughout the sessions with people. Wow, that that actually resonated so deeply with me. Um, just the fact that there is so much that goes into um, broaching and how, as we are trained, it's usually we want to create that space for our clients, but never really with ourselves. Um, so kind of as a follow-up into everyone on, on the panel, um, you know, is broaching an ongoing process for you um, or should it be an ongoing process? And if so, like, are there certain points that you would want to broach, such as like at the beginning of when you first meet your clients, in the middle, at the end, like how, how do you conceptualize that? It depends. Did I get that right? Right? Isn't that the answer to everything on every exam you've all ever taken in your whole entire life? I know, right? 
Um, but it does depend, right? LB, I mean, um, I think the develop the the development that the 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 psychological development, the human development of the person that you're working with. I mean, uh, Dr. Griffith, you know, whether you're working with a first year student or, or a graduate student, it's going to depend. Um, I I don't know that I when I used to be a clinician that I brought it up early, early, early on. Right now, it is interesting as Dr. Griffith was talking about her example. I'm like, oh. That's like part of an intake, right? Particularly since you reference Wake, a PWI in the South, uh, disproportionately uh, populated by people with with wealth and who are white and cisgender. And so again, that is the quintessential. It depends, right? When I worked at UNCG before I worked here as a faculty member, not as a as a member in in, in their use in their version of the UCC, it's a little different, right? But um, I I guess I'll be the only way that I would reframe. Your, your question is knowing that at some point in that therapeutic relationship, there'll be a good time to bring it up, whether it's early on, whether it's in the beginning, I would, I would argue that probably towards the end is not a good chance or a good idea. Otherwise you might want to end, you know, you might want to make room for more, more hours in your, in your week for some follow-up sessions. Um, but it really does depend on how, how, how early you bring it up. The other thing that you mentioned, there was a, there was a should, could question right in in your in your in your uh, query to us um i, I think it, it's always open for discussion right and so i don't want to make it i don't want to you know elicit our 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 inner analysis and you know and, and start getting all over the shit and whatnot but i do think it's better to do that than not Dr. Griffith, go, go ahead. I can go last. Yeah, again, like, like Dr. B said, it depends, right? Um, it depends on so many factors and so many things. And for, and I think it depends on the identities of the, of the counselor as well, right? And like the identity of the client that's sitting across from you. For a client who has a lot of identities that are overlapping with mine, like that might be something that we talk about a little bit later, right? That's not as salient in the room. I'm more likely to talk about like, what's it like to sit with a therapist or someone that you don't know and talk about these things, right? Um, for a student that's coming in that identifies as a person of color or holds another marginalized identity, um, I'm probably going to bring that up sooner because I know that they're probably thinking about it, right? Um, and I hold so much power within that space that it's my job to open the door of that, of like, it's okay if you're thinking about this, like, it's okay, we can talk about this. And so for me, like it, it does depend. Um, it depends on how often we bring it up. It depends on what the person is struggling with and how often we need to bring that up, right? Um, I feel like if you you bring it up enough times and you talk through it enough times, it doesn't always have to be something that you explicitly address either. Um, because once you lay the groundwork enough, clients feel comfortable saying, you know, sometimes I feel like you don't get this because you're a white woman and that makes me mad. And, and that for me is a win, great, because I have laid enough groundwork that you feel safe saying that to me. Cool, 
um, let's see what we can do about that. I am certainly sorry that you're having that experience. Like, um, and I can see how that can happen. And so it, it all depends. I think the most important thing is to think like, at first it's going to be uncomfortable. The more you do it, you're just, you're going to get comfortable with it. It's going to, it's going to be better. Um, your discomfort doesn't mean it's not the right time necessarily. Um, it's a, it's just an uncomfortable conversation to have because race and power and privilege is not something that we have necessarily talked about openly until recently. So, Well, I'm going to follow uh, my colleagues and say it depends. And, and, and um, uh, I enjoy this, the idea of narrative. And so I'll give my answer in directly answering the question and a story of when I didn't do it. My belief system is that within those first sessions, um, especially me as a black woman, I want to know how my client is experiencing me, right? Uh, most of you know that uh, I was on a mission trip, I call it my mission trip, over on the West Coast in Spokane, Washington. Um, five minutes from Idaho, uh, a place where there were not a lot of beautiful brown faces. And when I went to Spokane, and for you who know what I mean by approaching, I felt like I was at infusing. Infusing in short, meaning that I walk the walk, I live it, I talk it, it's who I am in the classroom, it's who I am um, in session, it's who I am at home. I don't mind talking about these difficult topics. Magically, when I showed up in Spokane, I did not broach. Um, I now can say that I think I was afraid to broach. I knew that my environment was different. I knew that here is this beautiful black brown person here who has to be careful that she doesn't come off as the black person who always wants to talk about being black and race. And you're in Spokane, Washington. And I knew that I had this awareness and I knew my training and I knew my passion and I knew all those things yet I did not do, I wasn't true to myself out of fear. I can't put myself in a position where someone assumes that this is my thing and I'm gonna come here and I'm gonna drive it home. So in that space, I remember with clients, I didn't broach until midway through. Um, or I, I remember, again, if you continue on writing notes saying, okay, this week, make sure you ask about this or make sure you say this. Like I was trying to force myself to get it in that's that initial stage of the broaching process. I'm gonna try one thing. Um, so how is it coming in here to a school? Okay, well, that's very easy. Like, you know, a school, okay. You could go to a private practice or an agency. So it depends, but yet, and I, and I love the new 2020 article where it talks about, I think what Dr. Griffin, I heard you saying at the beginning, we've got to do our own stuff as well, right? I've got to be willing to bring that uncomfortable topic in the room and recognize when it's my fear, my resistance, that's not allowing my client and I to have these difficult conversations. Um, and so how long did it take me to get, get it together and consult and talk? And, uh, and I didn't talk to my colleagues there about it because they didn't look like me. I wasn't 
remember the first time I mentioned the word in class, 30 some students, they looked at me and thought I was talking about the brooch on a coat. And I thought, oh, goodness. and not tell them I, I can't risk my career right here, right? So it took me probably a year, a year and a half before I said, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get out of this fear space. And if it means it costs you your career, it's the chance you take. So it depends. Also, we live in a world that's not always so friendly and kind. And so sometimes we have to go digging for our stronghold to to make sure that we are the ones holding back on these difficult topics. Hopefully that was not too long of a response. No, I don't think so at all. I think it was really valuable uh, to get those insights. And um, I appreciate the, it depends. It's a very familiar word again. Uh, so, and I think it's important. I think there's a reason for that. I think it acknowledges the complexity of, of these topics um, and kind of going off a little bit of what you said, Dr. Gosen, um, regarding like early experiences in broaching I was wondering, since a lot of you have had, or, or actually all of you have had some experience as supervisors of um, different people kind of getting into this and, you know, getting into the field right now, um, has there been a time that you've seen broaching go well um, as a supervisor? So somebody that you're supervising, and then is there a time that you've seen it where it maybe didn't go as well? Um, yes, I think there are times where I have seen it go amazing and there are, there are times where I have seen it be a starting point, right? Of like, all right, cool, you did it. Great. It, because it's hard and it's, it's uncomfortable. And often when you're first starting out, um, so I supervise doctoral level interns and then I help with some things with the master's interns as well, just depending, right? Um, and so I just want to give you that preface of like, this is kind of what I supervise. Um, and in the beginning, and this is going to be another, it depends too, right? Cause like, it depends on the supervisee where they are in their level. It also depends on their identities, um, about what, where they feel comfortable having that conversation and where they don't. Um, I feel like one of the greatest opportunities for me for growth was, um, my supervisee last year identified as a black woman. And I was like, you got to talk about this. And she was like, no, 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 <laughs> I'm not going to talk to this rich white kid about me being a black woman. And that I had to really, really challenge myself around that. Right. Of like, okay, no, actually she doesn't need to do that. And so there's a lot of nuance that goes in that um, in watching her kind of find the agency and the power and the self-confidence, right? Um, to like start to find her voice in that um, was pretty powerful. And in the beginning when she did it, it was hard and it didn't come out eloquent and like this nice speech, but that's the thing is that it never has to. Um, we can make mistakes and be like, oh, that came out weird. Sorry, um, that felt weird for me. I wonder how that felt for you, which is something I do in therapy all the time because I'm just a super awkward person. So um, I have seen, you know, that starting point of like, oh, that was really awkward. And the person's like, no, it's fine. 
it's fine. It doesn't bother me at all. I don't think about that. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Um, I have also watched people do it just in beautiful ways that um, you can tell that it's, it really resonates with the client that they're seeing. And it's really meaningful to them to have someone acknowledge that the experiences that they're having are real um, and that it's not something that they're just making a big deal out of or that they are kind of imagining things or blowing things out of proportion, which is how microaggressions work, right? Um, and to watch a trainee kind of have that conversation and have the person just, ah, yes. And the way that that feels for the trainee as well, right? Of like, I was scared to do this and I did it and it felt like it took our relationship to a completely different place. Um, so that is hopefully not too long of an answer to that. I guess it's my turn to go second now maybe. <laughs> um, wow. I've seen both ways. Uh, the, in supervision, the mistake that um, happened to me I, I was on the learning end, it was actually in a, in a job and not as an educator, is matching someone with another person because you believe their identities are the same. Right? And we try to mentor people, and, and I've had people say, I'm going to give you this mentor because she's a Black woman. And you know, in fact, at the she graduated from way and I finished at UVA and you guys went to schools and you like, wait, do we have any other interests other than we're black? Right. So that's a mistake, right? Um, in supervision, you might pair someone according to like background or interest, but avoid this concept that I must someone with a supervisee because of how they look. It, it Again, I can talk about my other program because I'm not there and I still love them. Um, we had a student who was chair bound and we matched first years and second years with mentors. And I remember them saying to me, oh, we matched her with the incoming student because she, um, she uh, also, she lost her leg when she was five. I'm like, huh? So because one's in a wheelchair, like those kinds of things is not a, right? There's no, me the, the base purpose is that, okay, maybe they can share something in common. But my idea is not this material thing that you can just match it with a puzzle, right? Match those in supervision, that can be problematic. On the, on the good side where it's been productive and helped, is when both people know and it's, it's broached or, or talked about almost immediately as far as styles, right? As we come together, you're the supervisee, I'm the supervisor. While my view, my perspective is likely gonna be different than yours. Notice how I didn't say race, age, just like I think we get scared about these big topics. I began to open the space that our perceptions are different now I can come back later in a session and say, now, as you sat in the room as the counselor and I'm giving you feedback, what was it like for you to sit in the room with an older male and you're a younger female? Doesn't have to be about me, right? I can use what my supervisee is bringing to the table, right? And then great counselors, then we go and in the moment of immediacy, 
you talked to me about how it was with that client. How is it working for you with me as an African-American supervisor, right? So there's many different dynamics by which we can bring this element of talking about differences. And the last thing I'll say, because usually I get this, why are we always pointing out our differences? Can we point out things where we're similar? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. There's times when you say, gosh, I relate to that. Um, you have a daughter? Yeah, I have a daughter as well, right? So race and, and those tough topics are the main parts of broaching. But if you're struggling with how to make this, to, to start talking about it, you can find things that are similar. The idea that you're opening the space by which the client knows I can come back and talk to this person or the supervisee knows I can come back and talk to this, these difficult things because we've already started it with some things that are, are not always easy to talk about. Bobby, I'll quickly just add that one of the things that, I've, um, that I think is really important is that you make room for broaching in supervision. I mean, I think oftentimes when we look at supervision as a supervisor, we're thinking about things like, are they uh, diagnosing their clients correctly or incorrectly? Are they using CBT correctly or incorrectly? Are they using uh, whatever, whatever it is? Right? Are they doing narrative therapy correctly or incorrectly? Um, but, you know, Dr. Dave Vines makes a really, uh, for me as a Rogerian, powerful connection between broaching and all the elements of, of, of Rogerian therapeutic factors, right? Whether it's empathy or whether it's unconditional positive regard, whether it's rapport building. And, and I remember thinking on like during the first week of, of intro to counseling, oh, this Rogers thing is really easy. Shame on me because it's really, really hard, right? I wish I could have been something that was a bit more, I don't know, clear. And so if, if we don't as supervisors make room and supervision to challenge our, our supervisees, so tell me a little bit why you didn't talk about race in that case. Oh, it wasn't about race. It was, it was because uh, they, they, they got arrested for shoplifting. Oh, okay. And did you not notice that there was whatever the case may be, right? Um, and, and again, doing it in a way that, that in and of itself applies broaching principles like going softly into that good night of why they did it, did not use broaching, right? Whether, whether or not they did or didn't talk about gender, whatever the case may be. I just think we need to be very intentional so that supervisees have a chance to practice, to, to mess up, to get it wrong, so that when they actually do leave where, where, whatever supervisory relationship they're in, they feel more confident in using broaching behavior. Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate all those insights, the, the multi-layered uh, relationships. I hadn't really considered that, Dr. Gosen, of like, it really is like from the top down, there's multiple broaching relationships that are happening and co-occurring at the same time. Um, and definitely, again, like mo most of the things we've talked about, very complex in the sense of knowing how to help them navigate these conversations. Um, so on a more personal note, um, I'm wondering how your identity um, might have come up in session and what impact uh, it had on the therapeutic relationship with a client. So maybe just noting or observing a time where that might've happened. All right, I'll go first this time, y'all. <laughs> it's my turn, right? So um, I'm first gonna give a tip of the cap to Dr. Griffith, uh, acknowledging her privileges when talking about, about anything, right, in session. So for me, it, um, 
my identity came up not as a Latino male, but as an educator with a master's degree. And I, I'm going back now into the old days, right? So as a second year school counselor, um, having finished my, my degree and, and comfortable in my own space, I had a really great professor that taught, taught me years ago, Jose, you will do half the work in twice the time, your first year. And then your second year, you will do twice the work and half the time. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So I'm spinning my wheels my first year. So by my second year, I knew exactly what I was doing. And then school counselors, particularly in Florida, which is where I worked at the time, um, sat in on IEPs, particularly when children were being staffed into a particular program. And um, I was in a very contentious meeting with a very contentious parent who did not want her African-American male son being staffed into a special education classroom because she remembers being in that same school 15, 20, 30 years ago and being sent to that portable in the corner of that school. And even though they were no longer portables and even though they were no longer uh, out in the middle of nowhere, that trauma from being put there a decade, two decades ago was very, very sharp. And I remember sitting in there and um, people looking at me going, so as the only person of color in here, you're going to make this happen, right? And I and no one told me that, Bobby. You just knew that's what they were looking for you to do as the cultural broker. And I remember feeling a certain kind of way about making sure that that child ended up in that program because I knew they needed those services, not because I had been in that role before. And in the middle of the meeting, the parents took up and she looked at all of us and said, you are all a bunch of crackers, a bunch of entitled, no good crackers. And so in that particular moment, it wasn't my Latino ethnicity that came out. It was my master's degree in education that came out and it got thrown in my face. That's how my identities come up from time to time. I think for my identity, um, this may not happen as much now, but kind of reflecting back, there's something about my voice. And back in the day when you like used to make your own, you know, maybe we still do this, you make your appointments via phone. And I developed this thing that I still do. So I like to talk to my clients a little bit on the phone. Now it's usually email, I like the phone. I want to hear their voice. Um, I want them to hear my voice. And more times than not, they'd show up to my office and say, um, I'm looking for Dr. Ghostin. And again, I have a little bit of sarcasm about me. Let me help you find her, you know, or I, and then I'll sound just playing. It's me. And they literally look at me with this face of like, you're Dr. Ghostin. If my name was on the door, I'd say, yeah, that person, that, that, yeah, that's me. And they'd say, oh, okay. And I was like, you know, now I'm curious. Like, what, who are you looking for? Right. And again, I, you know, I didn't let the moment pass. So who were you looking for? And they would usually get a little embarrassed or, you know, so it's like, there's something over time when I kept getting that. And so finally I started saying, well, can you, who are you looking for? Like, and they would say, you don't sound like a black woman on the phone. 
So was I supposed to say, yo, yo, what's up? You coming to holler at me for therapy? Like, is I, was I supposed to talk in a certain, like, was I supposed to present in a certain way? But their mindset said my voice didn't match that of a black woman. And so I had to get okay with that while not being okay with that. Because once I realized what it was and they would say it, those little hairs on your arm, they got a little prickly. They were like, uh, here we like, how am I supposed to speak on the phone? And does it matter that I'm a black woman? And I knew in that moment, yes, it did. So it naturally then, you know, well, let's talk about that. How is it having this session or this meeting uh, with me as a black woman? So it's my voice. I will say like identity is often a thing that comes up. Um, I feel like it always comes up because it's therapy is a relationship and it's all of these identities make up who I am as a person and all of the other person's identities make them up. Um, and people make all kinds of, you know, assumptions about that. And I think there are times that I work, like I'll work with students who come from a lot of economic privilege who assume that I grew up with a lot of economic privilege as well. Um, and I didn't, like I grew up in a blue collar family and my grandmother worked housekeeping in a state mental hospital, right? Like, um, but that's an assumption that people have about me because of where I work. One of the ones that I think where so many of my identities were really salient and where they overlapped and where they didn't was, um, I worked with a graduate student who identified as a queer black woman. Um, and she was from a rural area in the South where um, she had experienced lots of marginalization based on her identity as being black, her identity as being a woman, and then also being marginalized within that community for identifying as being queer, right? And so like she had experienced lots of marginalization and grew up with periods of homelessness or like unstable housing um, and had really been and marginalized and experienced a lot of marginalization at Wake as well, right? Um, and was really feeling that. And her counselor left the counseling center and she was working with someone who identified as a black woman. And she said, I think Brooke will be a really good fit for you. And she was on my caseload and she was like, um, I don't know that you're a good fit for me. And I was like, I hear that. Like, let me tell you a little bit about me. Um, let's talk and, and let's see if it's a good fit. Like, um, there were lots of times she was really nice and happy a lot of the time, um, because that is how she had gotten by. And so we talked about that and what would it be like if she didn't have to do that with me? Um, we talked about, you know, the assumptions that she had about me having money and where I came from. And we talked about me coming from like, you know, my family didn't have money. I grew up in a trailer, like, and we were able to kind of connect on some of those experiences where she was like, oh, you can get that. Um, we talked a lot about race. We talked a lot about um, sexual orientation. Like it, we just kind of talked about them. And I was often the person bringing it up because I was the person with so much privilege in the room that like I, I needed to open up that space for her and I needed to give her permission to say like, I'm not sure if you're going to be able to get it, or I'm not sure if I feel safe talking to you about this, or, um, 
And the more I did that, the more comfortable she was that like, I realized this is a thing. I realized it's a thing we can talk about. Like, no, I haven't had these experiences, but I want to hear what they're like for you in, in validating those experiences. Um, our identities were always in the room, always. And I would watch her kind of struggle and fall apart and cry and then put that nice, happy-go-lucky demeanor back on so she wouldn't be interpreted as an angry Black woman and walk out and watch her just exist in the world in that way. Um and what that was like for her. So that is one of the clients that still sticks with me that I think about. We were so, we were talking about that so much. Um, and. Mm, well, thank you all for those insights. Um, I mean, I, I think I, me personally, I resonated with several of those experiences um, with you, Dr. Viapa, where you had a parent trying to advocate for her child and you know, the, the school didn't want to work with them in a positive manner. And Dr. Gosen, with the name and how your voice comes across, and it doesn't always fit the person who people are expecting, especially when you can't see them on the other end. Um, and, and Dr. Griffith, you, you mentioned earlier um, and a little bit in your recountance of microaggressions and how, you know, you still have to kind of have a stiff upper lip and know who your audience is um, when you're when you're interacting with them. So I, I think each of those experiences have a component of highs and lows in terms of broaching or you know someone else not broaching in the situation. Um, so in noticing the time, um, I kind of want to move a little bit forward. Um, so quickly to you, Dr. Vialba. Um, how have you kind of seen broaching play out in your work with um, the diversity inclusion um, practices here at Wake Forest? So we've got another hour and a half, right, LB? Just checking. Everybody got pizza coming or whatever's kosher? Okay, just double checking to make sure everybody's got food coming because mine's on the way. No, I mean, it, first of all, it, we probably could take an hour and a half to do that, and I'm not going to, but I want to make sure that that to, and to best answer your question, and LB and Bobby, you gave me this question ahead of time, so I got a chance to prepare for it. How I approach broaching every day on campus is by reminding people in the majority that they need to talk about race, and they need to talk about inclusion, and they need to talk about all these other things that people don't normally talk about. It's interesting because I did my homework also making sure that I got the right response and definition from Dr. Dave Vines, right? Went to the source, right? We, and even in this conversation today, we haven't exclusively talked about it from, a per, from, the, from the direction of a person with privilege and a person with less privilege. But when we often think about broaching, even Dr. Devine's example, in her example, in that seminal article from 2007, it is a white European American therapist talking to Tyrone, comma, a black African-American young man. Flip it around. What if it is a black African-American counselor talking to Bobby about not wanting to go on that side of town? That therapist has every right and should be broaching with Bobby about, so why is it you don't want to go to that part of the town? Not, not, from a cha not from a confronting perspective, but using that Rogerian technique of challenging just to see where those biases are. So every day, 
on this campus, particularly over the last three or four years, as the block has gotten hotter and hotter and hotter on this campus and on other campuses. My job is using every counseling skill I learned from 1994, God help me, all through the last time I had the privilege of guest lecturing in Dr. Ghostin's class a year ago, give or take a month, right? Every single chance that I have, and I'm in these places that I'm not as comfortable with as I used to be, or even as familiar with, surrounded by a lot of folk who don't look like me, who grew up in very different households, who haven't had the kind of talks that I've had with my abuela, with my tío, with my prima, with my with my wife's nana and the booby and all these other different mixes of, 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 of races and religions that we have in our house and constantly challenging folks who really don't have to ever think about these things. So you wanna talk about the insurrection on January 6th at the Capitol? So would you like to talk about Breonna Taylor and Sandra Bland and George Floyd and Tamir Rice and the Emanuel Nine? Ooh, no. Yeah, well, we need to for a variety of reasons. We wanna talk about the, the economic disparities on campus compared to other places. So that's, that's been my life LB for better, not for worse for the last six years in different, in different capacities on campus. That's how I approach reminding white folk that they need to talk about race and ethnicity and homophobia and Islamophobia. Wow, that, that's, I love that. Um, and and I, I do think we um, should make an effort to, to try and have a little bit of like, hey, let's talk about this um, wherever possible. Um, and so now I kind of want to switch gears again to um, just letting everyone who is here with us tonight kind of just ask their questions. Um, because unfortunately my pizza isn't on the way, uh, Dr. Vialba. So, you know, got to go actually go out and probably get something to eat at some point. Um, but there was, so if you do have any questions, just throw them in the chat and we'll do our best to get to them all. Um, but the first question um, that I received uh, was, how can we use broaching with a client or when a client reacts with hostility or a desire to ignore the issue? Um, especially become becomes clear during the relationship that, you know, there's a little bit of resistance to the fact that identity is, is clearly in the room. Do you want to take that Dr. Griffith or go ahead. I was going to say, I am I'm doing clinical work day in and day out. And so this is a experience I have, right. Um, one of the things that I, I find is really helpful for me when I experience, when I feel that pushback from a client, right? Like is to remember that resistance is normal, right? Like we want people to have some defenses. If you come in and you tell me everything and you're willing to talk about all the stuff that's really uncomfortable for you in the first three minutes, we got a whole different thing going on. Right. Um, so I'm like, all right. And then I'll name it. Right. I'm like, it seems like this is bringing up something for you. Like, um, it seems like you're feeling frustrated and I wonder what's going on, right? Like, we don't need to talk about this thing. I, I had a professor use this great analogy of like, we don't need to talk about what's in the box. 
can we just talk about what might be hard about opening the box, right? Um, we don't need to do it, it's fine. I also will talk to clients about choice points. Like, I feel like we have a choice here and we can go a couple of different ways, right? We can kind of shift gears and, and move away from this. We can talk about this instead. Um, and, and I wonder where you wanna go from this and, and what you wanna get out of this, right? Um, how we can get there. It's a team. And so if I can shift over and align myself with what is going on, what's coming up for you that you're pushing up against this and how do we deal with that, right? Um, what's gonna work for you? Is this a space we're not gonna go to yet? Um, that like, you're like, I'm not ready to talk about that. Okay. Do you want to talk about it at some point? Would it be okay? I will often ask, would it be okay if I notice this, if I bring it up again? Um, and just ask permission to do that, right? I've never had somebody tell me no, ever. Um, and then I bring it up again. It's like, I noticed that we've come back to this thing. Um, and last time, we, it, you know, it felt a, a, a way for you to kind of push into this. We're here again. What do you want to do, right? Um, you, and they move a little bit more into that uncomfortable space and then a little bit more and then a little bit more. And before you know it, you're having the conversation. Um, but you can't, sometimes you got to go in through the window and not through the front door. Thank you. Uh, appreciate you answering that question. I felt like that was great to kind of just process through all that. Um, so with the time, uh, we only have a couple minutes left uh, and just kind of wanting to get some final reflections just on this experience as panelists, um, you know, what it's been like to have some of these discussions um, in this space. Uh, so if you all have any like last thoughts before we kind of close out, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say. My last thought was the, the question that, that I prepared for um, is why is it a benefit basically you know, LB and Bobby, I always think you guys are trying to, you know, get me to, you know, do something against what other professors have told you not to do, like, you know, Dr. Gosen will do it, you know, like a little, little setup. Like, why is it important? And I thought I, I can answer that in two seconds. It matters. Like that, that's, that's the bottom line. Like when you feel the resistance to it's uncomfortable, it matters. My identity, who I am matters. Your client's identity matters. It may be uncomfortable for you, you deal with that, but it matters. Look at the research as to why clients don't return. They don't feel seen, they don't feel embraced. You have to embrace all of them. To try to embrace the problem, anyone can do that. That's what their friends do. They embrace the problem. So why is it necessary to talk about broaching and to broach and how this impacts our society and identity, it matters. Thank you, Dr. Ghostin. I also think it's advocacy. Advocacy is one of the things that it's one of the pillars of the ACA. It's one of the pillars of what we do as counselors. And for me as a counselor and now doing what I do, it's always been really hard to figure out. So what's the advocacy part of counseling? How do I not how do I not overwhelm people with what I feel passionate about? How do I uh, not put my own counter-transference and my own projections onto folks? And so there is this very interesting, interesting dynamic. But there is a sense of advocacy, and it is one of the things that that we're that we're we're teaching folks to lean into as counselors. 
there, there's an element uh, to, to being an advocate for broaching these topics and talking about these issues that for so long, everybody has avoided talking about. And unfortunately, we have reaped those those seeds as as a society, as a community, as as an educational system, as a, a penal system, uh, and so if counselors don't broach because they're concerned or worried or scared or it's not for them, they're not going to do what Dr. Gosen just said because these things matter. And if counselors don't broach, then they're missing an opportunity to be an advocate. It is a tricky thing to do. And which is why I encourage everyone to practice during clinicals and 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 in group class and and in the multicultural class wherever it is you can, but um, it, it is it is it is advocacy. Yeah, I will echo what both of you have said. Like, as healers, you if you don't do it, you run the risk of re-traumatizing the person in front of you because you don't really see them and you don't really want to. Um, so many people are hurt by not being seen um, and you don't want to repeat that pattern. And so it's hard and it's scary and it, it's a skill that you develop, um, but you will do harm by not. So you have an obligation to do it. Um, see people, give them permission to fully step into a space and they will amaze you um, at the things that they will bring into that space. And thank you to the other two people on the panel with me tonight because I love to talk about these things and um, hear your wisdom and experiences. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'll echo that. Thank you so much, everyone. Um, you all really brought a lot of really valuable insights. Um, I just like kind of summarizing some of those last points. I think, you know, hopefully we leave better broaching as better advocates and recognize that this matters, that this work matters, that considering culture and our work as counselors and as humans uh, moving forward, we'll do better at that. And hopefully over the next three sessions, uh, a lot of you will be able to make it and we can make the most of this time together. Um, thank you, everyone. Uh, this was incredible. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for coming. Bobby and LB, thank you very much for having the vision, not only to think about thank this, you. Yeah. Thank you, so. and the rest of CSI, no shade. This <laughs> is a shade-free zone, it's late. Pizza's on its way, but seriously, appreciate you two for putting this on. <laughs>